So you find this patient, they're cold, they're tachycardic, yeah. they're less responsive than normal. They're still, they can still talk. So how would you decide, okay, this patient's either in shock or are nearing shock? What's like the cutoff for you? Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Welcome back to the Rapid Response Learning Podcast. Joining once again, I have my buddy, Christian Guzman, the nerdy nurse practitioner. Hi, friends. We are talking once again about heart failure. Today's episode is specifically about heart failure and how we can manage it medically, even up to cardiogenic shock and how we medically manage cardiogenic shock. So Christian, can you just give us a quick synopsis of the patient from the last episode? Sure. And then talk about kind of what was done for her whenever she declined towards cardiogenic shock. Cool. So if you didn't listen to the last episode, well, you shouldn't. But basically, this is a female in her 60s who had a 100% occlusion to her LAD, was into cardiogenic shock, had a stent placed, was on dobutamine for inotropic support, which is a beta agonist, and as well as an intraortic balloon pump. She progressed to heart failure because she probably had long-standing disease and she had such an insult. So her ejection fraction upon leaving the hospital was 25 to 30%. And before she left the hospital, she was actually started on what we'll talk about a goal-directed therapy with ACE inhibitor for afterload reduction, beta blocker, and Lasix as needed for fluid management. Eventually, she was even uh, was transitioned to from the lisinopril to Entresto, which is a potent afterload reducer, um, and was added on Jardians which is an SGLT2 inhibitor, mm. which we'll, we, we have, have we talked about it? Was there a podcast on that once? Um, My longest podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so SGLT, she was starting on Jardines, which is an SGLT2 inhibitor, which has been shown to be efficacious in heart failure and overall mortality and exacerbations. And she was actually given an AICD because of her ejection fraction. And she progressed from full-blown cardiogenic shock trans, um, on drips, transitioned to an oral regimen, and is now at home. So if you are a nurse at any point in this type of patient's right. progression, yeah. if you are an ER nurse when they're coming to the hospital after their MI, yes. if you are an ICU nurse caring for this patient, all these pressers, if you are a med nurse nurse caring for the patient, you know, post-shock state, recovering. Mm -hmm. If you are outpatient in a clinic and you're caring for this patient, maintaining their life. Or home health. <laughs> or, oh yeah, Ooh, home, health. home health. Yeah, so these patients come to yes. us in all different stages. So it's really important to understand heart failure 
the whole thing. What's yeah. this happening with them? So can you back us up and just explain what are the goals of therapy and managing someone with heart failure? Sure. So the whole goal is to try to go and optimize the heart function, right? And you do that three ways. I think of it as the acronym of CAP, contractility, afterload, preload. Okay, contractility meaning help the heart pump as hard as it can. Afterload, reduce the afterload, reduce the resistance that the heart has to push against and optimize your preload. You wanna make sure that you have enough volume in the ventricle to kind of help pump the blood out to make sure- that But not too much. But not too much. <laughs> but not too much. You don't want to go and overload the, the, the heart. So those three things, contractility, afterload, and preload. That's how you, those are the overarching goals of heart failure therapy. That's what you need to optimize. Perfect. So when you say contractility, mm -hmm. obviously that's how effective the heart is squeezing. Yeah. What are medical management options to increase contractility? Okay, so let's go back to the patient, right? So the patient had what I would call a stunned myocardium. So she had a myocardial infarction, not just an MI. I call it a myocardial infarction. When it's really bad. So much more intense when you said an infarction. Bomb, bomb, bomb. So she had a significant hit to her heart. And whenever you have ischemia to your heart, you have lack of blood flow, cells die. That happens. Or at the very least, they get damaged. And if they're damaged long enough, they're going to die. So you're going to reduce that ability, right? So like, let's say you have 100 guys helping move a big boulder, and now you have 50 because the other 50 got knocked out. That's what's happening, right? So sometimes you have to go and you have to like either mechanically or chemically help push that heart. And we do that by utilizing the, let's go back to like our physiology and our medication management. So there's two ways that you could do it. You could use our adrenergic receptors, which in this case would be our beta receptors, beta one and beta two. So beta one, right, will cause vasodilation and it'll increase contraction, it'll increase your heart rate. So if you use a beta one agonist, right, something that helps beta one, then basically you're gonna help contract, you're basically gonna help the heart contract. And that medication is gonna be your dobutamine, your epinephrine and even norepinephrine or levofed has some beta one activity. Okay. Just a little bit. <laughs> just, just a sweet, a wee little bit, a wee little bit. But so this lady was on dobutamine. That's a pure beta one agonist. And the reason that that's real nice is because it has pure beta one. So you have the vasodilation, right? And you have the contractility. And the reason the vasodilation is clear is because, again, let's go back to cap, afterload, want to reduce afterload. If you reduce your, if you vasodilate, you're going to reduce your systemic blood pressure. Why does that matter? The heart, in order for the aortic valve to open, the pressure in the ventricle has to be higher than the aortic pressure, which is basically your systolic blood pressure. So if your blood pressure in the aorta is 90, then that means I have to generate a pressure of 90. If your blood pressure is 180, the ventricle has to go and generate a blood pressure of 180 before it even opens up the valve. So it's a lot less work to generate a pressure of 90 than it is to generate a pressure of 180. So medications like dobutamine, dobutamine. or milrinone. So milrinone is different. I know, but it, it is an inodilator. It is an inodilator. <laughs> it is an inodilator. But the benefit is not only are we increasing contractility, Correct. C, Yes. But we also get a little help with the A. Correct. As it dilates the blood vessel, absolutely. making it easier for that weak heart to squeeze the blood out. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Okay. So increased contractility, that's our C. 
Uh, our medications, can you list them again? So you have dobutamine for as a beta-1 agonist. You have epinephrine at low doses. So epinephrine is kind of cool in the sense that it's dose-dependent. So at low doses, epinephrine theoretically, theoretically has a pure beta-1 activity. It's like less than 0.04 to 0.06, depending on the literature you read, depending on who you talk to, that's the dose. At that dose, you theoretically don't have any afterload increasing in vasoconstriction. So epinephrine, dobutamine, norepinephrine, baby dose, like it's a little bit of beta-1 activity, but I would not use norepinephrine as an inotrope. Right. And then we also have phosphodiesterase inhibitors, which is like milrinone. Phosphodiesterase breaks down cyclic AMP. Cyclic AMP helps increase the calcium in the myocytes, and calcium is needed for contraction. Right. So it goes about it in a different way. It goes about it in like a backwards way. You're inhibiting the thing that reduces your calcium in the cell. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that would be your other, that would be the contractility. And that's kind of like the butamine in the sense that it causes vasodilation and it causes um, increased contractility just in a different way. Okay. So we want to increase contractility because the heart is not doing a good job of onset. Correct. Yeah. Okay. We want to decrease afterload so it's yeah. easier on that weak yeah. heart to get the blood out. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then what's the P part? How can we help preload? Preload. Ooh. So preload's tricky. Preload. Preload is a dynamic target. Yeah, it is. And that basically means that you want a Goldilocks preload. If you don't have enough, you don't have anything to pump out. But if you have too much, you're going to bog down that heart. So you want to go and you want to optimize preload as, as much as possible. So a lot of times these patients have super dilated ventricles and they can't handle the fluid. So you want to reduce that preload. The way that you reduce the preload is by reducing ventricular volume. And the way that we come across that, the way that we go about doing that is diuresis. Um, there's different types of diuresis I'm not even going to go through because that could be a whole like one hour lecture right. on like different diuretic regimens. Most common ones are going to be Lasix or Bumex. Those are your loop diuretics. The one takeaway though is if you're giving Lasix and it's not working and then we'll give some more Lasix and it's not working, like, we're going to give 100 milligrams of Lasix every two hours. Maybe we should consider adding something besides. Correct. Just, just want to throw that out there. Yeah. I see it all the time when I interrupt response. Like, yeah, we've been diuresing and it's not working. Yeah. Well, and I will say, yeah, 100%. And I will say in addition to that is, so diuresis is interesting because a lot of people will say, well, the creatinine is up, so we don't want to diurese. Remember, if you don't optimize preload, you will, meaning if make you make the creatinine worse, <laughs> you will make the creatinine worse. If you are, if your patient looks like the Michelin man and he is so, he or she is so edematous that you touch them and it looks like a memory foam where it like pits because the edema is so bad and their creatinine is high, a lot of people are tempted to say, no, well, they need a little bit of fluid. I don't want to diarrhea them. No, diarrhea is what they need. They need it. So you, you just want to be careful. Just because you have a high creatinine doesn't mean you hold diuresis. You need to figure out why the creatinine tie. And in this instance, it's because of the preload. So you want to get, you want to reduce the preload as much as possible, reduce the size of the ventricle, and help it work a lot less than what it normally does. Right. And I want to add to you, when managing heart failure, sometimes we want to reduce the preload to help them. Correct. And sometimes you want to increase the preload yes. to help them, which is why it's a moving target. So it's not like, oh, they're having worse than heart failure, diarrhea, whoop, whoop. Maybe actually 
they would do better with a little more volume. Like, yeah, <laughs> it really depends. And that's why we need dynamic measurements of stroke volume Ooh. and not just like static measurements. Yeah. Thank you. Not just blood pressure. A quick story. I had a patient, must have been two weeks ago. The patient's blood pressure was dropping. He was mm -hmm. like soft, like 88 systolic. Um, his renal failure had worsened. He had to put on dialysis. He's in the progressive care unit and blood pressure is dropping. So the team is like, oh, well, must they must have over, like pulled too much volume with dialysis. Mm -hmm. So I put the patient on a dynamic measurement stroke volume, not just blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And that did not appear to be what the problem was. So the stroke volume was like, I want to say like 90. <laughs> yeah. The cardiac index was 1.8. And the SBR, I want to say is on the high side, like 13 or 1500. Anyways, you don't have to know all these numbers. The takeaway is they kept giving volume to this patient thinking, oh, his blood pressure is low because Ooh, he's volume depleted. Yep. Mm -hmm. But actually his blood pressure was low because his heart was failing and he couldn't squeeze effectively. Yeah. And so he actually, the volume was making things worse. I sure. Think, as you said. Yeah. So, okay. So if we want to decrease preload, we give diuretics. Wow. Well, uh -huh. Is that it working? We could dialyze. Correct. And if we want to increase preload, you're like, wait, but their heart can't handle the volume, but maybe their heart needs it. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of, a lot of people forget the fact that like, People with heart failure get dehydrated too. People yeah. with heart failure get septic. Mm -hmm. People with heart failure bleed, yeah. right? So there are times where you do need to give patients with heart failure a little bit of volume because if you don't, then you run the issue of getting to the other side of the Frank Starling curve, which is, I got nothing in there. Did it. Yeah. Well, can I just share my like yeah. Frank Starling's curve for dummies? So if you think about like a hair tie, like, you know, the ones you put your hair back with, when you first buy your hair tie, if you don't wrap around a tie, if you don't stretch it enough, it's not gonna hold your hair. So like you have to have enough stretch for it yeah. to actually recoil back and hold your hair in place, right? So with preload, if you don't have enough preload, you're not stretching it out, so there's not good recoil, you have decreased cardiac output. But there's times when you like overstretch that hair tie, and it's not. You're like, shoot, that's it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like cardiac rupture. <laughs> I, don't <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. If Obviously, I don't wear hair ties. If you increase preload too much and you overstretch that hair tie, it loses its elasticity and then it can't recoil back to hold your hair. So it's like always stretched out and dilated, and it's not even hair tie anymore. I'm sorry, this is not your realm, but no. this is obviously for me. <laughs> so for Frank Starling's curve, you need enough preload to fill the ventricle so that it can recoil back properly to get that yeah. cardiac output. Okay. But you don't want to overdo the hair tie, stretch it out too yeah. much. What is it, the sarcomeres? The sarcomeres get all, right, what is it? Really? Sarcomeres. The sarcomeres get all go. stretched out and go. they can't recoil back as well, just like your hair tie. Hey there, I've got some exciting news to share and I can't wait to tell you about it. So if you're multitasking, come back to me because this is something you won't want to miss. You may already be familiar with my one hour rapid response and rescue course, a quick dive into approaching critical patients. I'm thrilled to receive such positive feedback from nurses who found it valuable, but I'm not stopping there. I've been hard at work developing a more comprehensive, in-depth course. However, the more I work on it, the more I realize that I wanna offer more than just another course to purchase. Reflecting on my years as an educator, what I truly cherish is the opportunity to interact with nurses in real time breaking down complex concepts, mentoring, inspiring, coaching, and supporting nurses as they navigate the challenges of our profession. Teaching and empowering nurses is close to my heart. Over my 20 years in the field, I've amassed a wealth of clinical knowledge that I'm committed to sharing with nurses. 
But there's more to being a great nurse than just understanding pathophysiology. Through trial and error myself, I've gained other valuable skills related to leadership, advocacy, resilience, which I believe can be beneficial to all nurses. So here's the plan for 2024. I wanna create a community of dedicated nurses who invest in themselves so that they can deliver exceptional patient care. This won't be just me recording myself for a podcast. I wanna teach live, address your questions and provide a platform for nurses to support one another. I'm calling it Rapid Response Academy, the heart and science of caring for the sick. Members will enjoy weekly live lessons, a community forum for questions and personal interaction with me to better understand your needs and support you on your journey. This is uncharted territory and I'm excited to explore it together. I'll be soft launching on December 1st to get to know the initial members. So those who sign up before December will receive a 25% discount and play a pivotal role in shaping the community from the ground up. The sign-up list opens on Friday, November 24th. If you're excited about more in-depth teaching, access to a supportive community of like-minded nurses, and the chance to be a part of our founding group, I'd love to have you on board. If you wanna learn more about what I'm building, I put a link in the show notes for you. Now, let's get back to today's episode. So in summary, we want to address contractility yes. with iotropes. Mm-hmm. Oh, we forgot one, the dioxin. Do you have some things to say about the dioxin? Well, Just say a Christian. All right. So here's... <laughs> I think that digoxin is a good drug in the right patient. So digoxin, for the people who are not so familiar with it, because it's kind of like an older drug that doesn't get used it's as... It's still oh. on the NCLEX, dude. Like, they still... <laughs> oh, man. Got to touch base with those authors then. So digoxin... It's a drug that's that's out there, especially people who have heart failure for a long time. So what digoxin does, it actually increases intracellular calcium. And it allows for the sarcomeres <laughs> to go <laughs> and attach to each other to contract, right? So basically, that's what it is. A lot of people use it now because it slows down your heart rate, causes bradycardia, because it kind of stretches out your QRS a little bit your cardiac action potential phase, which we go to at another later time because that's a whole other thing. We're going to mark board, I think. You can put it like right up here and it has to be the nerdy nurse practitioner's marker board. <laughs> but point is it increases intracellular calcium. A, a lot of people will use it for AFib. That's like really hard to control. Um, it used to be a mainstay for heart failure. It used to be commonly used. It's not anymore because there's some evidence showing that digoxin is actually associated with increased mortality. It, it definitely comes use. at a cost, right? It comes at a cost. And it's like real, and it's kind of like a dirty drug. It's really cleared. It competes with the same spot as um, potassium um, on my site. So if your potassium's cattywankis, toxicity of digoxin can also occur. So it's it's kind of a dirty drug. But yes, digoxin um, increases intracellular calcium. Not the same way that milrinone does. Right. They're a different mechanism. Right. Okay, so... Back to the acronym. Yes. C for contractility. Bam. Lots of options. A for afterload reduction. Reduction. I get easier for the heart to get the blood out of yes. there. So the way that you reduce the afterload is by vasodilating, right? So you do it with um, drugs like hydrolyzine, but the mainstay is like lisinopril, mm-hmm. right? Lisinopril is a great afterload reducer. So, that, and, you know, there's also angiotensin blockers and stuff like that. So A for afterload reduction. Yes. And then P for... Preload, I'm going to call it optimization. optimization. Yes. Not love it. decrease or no. increase. We just want to optimize it. 
with the Goldilocks right in the middle, just right. That's what the heart wants. So we have to use our brains to figure that out and not just... Preload is a dynamic target. Okay. So we're managing this patient. Let's just go back to like, let's say it's a, it's a rapid response. Okay. Cool. Yeah, so this go. patient, they are pale and they're cold. Yeah. And they are tachycardic. Yep. And they're less perfused to their brain. So they're a little bit sleepy and not sure. as perky as yeah. they usually are. Okay. So you're the nurse practitioner and you show up to the rapid response. What clues would tell you this might be a little cardiogenic shock situation? So... I would say the poor man's test is what does their skin feel like? Yes. They okay. Touch, touch your patient. Touch your patient. If you have a swan, you have chest x-rays, you have chest CTs, you have all this data, you are not solely dependent on your physical exam. But when you're going to a rapid response or when you're on the floor or at the home setting or in the clinic, your physical assessment is key, right? So touch your patient. See what they feel like. So if they're hypotensive, right, and they're warm, that's because they're vasodilated, because they have blood vessels that are open on their skin. So that's more of a distributive shock. But if they're cold and hypotensive, that's that's a key that you may end up being in cardiogenic shock. So, so pull back the covers. Pull back the covers. Touch your patient. Touch your patient. Okay. So you find this patient, they're cold, they're tachycardic. Yeah. They're less responsive than normal. They're still, they can still talk. Yeah, but they're just okay. weird. So how would you decide, okay, this patient's either in shock or are nearing shock? What's like the cutoff for you? So what's their blood pressure, right? That, that's going to be the main thing. If they're hypotensive, um, then they're definitely in shock. If they're not hypotensive... you finding that it's less than 90 systolic? Less than 90. So less than... Okay, good question, right? So less than 90 is what you're going to read in the textbook and is going to be in the guidelines and all that stuff. Also, a decrease from their baseline. There we go. Bam. So a decrease from their baseline. So if you have somebody who is normally in the 160s, 180s, and they've been like that the entire time, and now they're 110, you're like, no, their blood pressure's fine. Wow, it's well controlled. I haven't had to go many medicine. You're like, oh, there's something wrong. But that should be a clue. Hey, there's something wrong. This lady's like normally in the 180s, and now she's like 110. I haven't given her any of her medications, and she's acting a little funny. And that's the key right there. I don't know if say, I held the morning meds because the blood pressure was 90 systolic. Yeah. I'm like, Right, but, but why was it 90 systolic? So, and now we've held the meds they're so used to getting. Yeah. So their afterload's even higher. Or, so let's say this patient's 120. Yeah. And we just, and that's it. You would say this, but the person who responds to the average meds, let's say they ordered a beta blocker. Mm-hmm. And we give the patient, I don't know. That is a good question. A, a beta blocker, IV push. Sure. What's the heart rate? It was 120. That's what they called a rep response. Okay. So that's interesting. So you're asking if that's the right med, right move, bad move. So it depends. I think it, it really depends, right? And decompensated heart failure, you want to stay away from beta blockers if you can, if you're truly in shock from a cardiogenic shock. Because Why what is that? Let's go back to our acronym, CAP, the C part, contractility. We optimize it by giving dobutamine and epi, which are beta agonists. Right. Beta increases. It helps the beta. It helps the beta, which helps the heart pump, pump, pump. If you block the beta block, if you block the beta receptors, you're going to have less pumping function. So you need every single last receptor, you want it engaged. So, so how do you decide when to or when not to give that beta blocker for time to hurry Oh, the decision, and this is an unsatisfying answer. You give the beta blocker when you think that the high heart rate is causing the low blood pressure. Mm-hmm. You hold the beta blocker if you think that the high heart rate is because of the low blood pressure. 
that's when you make the decision to hold the beta blocker or give the beta blocker. A lot of times, your heart rate's 110, 120, with rare exceptions, that's not causing your hypotension. Right. If you're 180, 190, okay, give the beta blocker. Right. Yeah, very good um, delineation. So um, just for those visual learners, if you have a heart that is squeezing faster, usually increased heart rate will increase cardiac output, Yeah. right? Squeeze a couple more times, you can get more cardiac output. Mm -hmm. But if you go so fast, there's not enough time to fill, and so cardiac output drops, and therefore blood pressure drops. So sometimes, if we can slow the heart rate down, the right. fill time, we can increase the blood pressure. Yeah. But sometimes, we can also make the heart not squeeze very effectively. Yeah. Make well, another, another way to think about it, if, so cardiac output is stroke volume times heart rate. If you have the same stroke volume with an increasing heart rate, your cardiac output is going to increase. But if your heart rate gets so high that you're not, so normally your heart's going to fill and contract, fill and contract, fill and contract. If your heart rate is so fast, you're going to increase the heart rate, but you're also reducing the stroke volume part. Right. So that's going to decrease your cardiac output. Yeah. Good. Okay. So let's say we gave a beta blocker, didn't do too much. In fact, now the patient is more hypotensive uh -huh. and getting colder and colder. Yeah. And they're less responsive. So we decided to take the patient to the ICU. Sure. Okay. They're in the ICU. They mm -hmm. are pale. Mm -hmm. They are cold. They are becoming increasing. Like things are getting worse. They are spiraling, right? They're, they're moving up the ladder of that criteria. We're at right? D. We're at D. We're at D now, right? We're at stage they're, D. They're decompensated, yes. right? So what are our intervention options and like what order do you start these things to increase contractility to decrease afterload? That's a good, it's a loaded question. I it's know. a very loaded question because there's two patients. Okay, there's the patient that is hypertensive on that side mm -hmm. doing that or normotensive. And then there's the patient that's hypotensive. The patient that's normotensive or hypertensive is probably like stage, maybe stage C, yeah. like, you know, they haven't completely like crumped out. Right. I would give them an idodilator. I wouldn't give them, so, and here's where the, the way that the drugs work make a difference. So Epi, Epi is a beta agonist at low doses, but at higher doses, you start to have your alpha receptors activated and the alpha receptors vasoconstrict. So if you go and you start somebody who is in, who is normotensive or hypertensive, if you start them on epi, all you're gonna do is increase their blood pressure, right? So it's gonna increase their blood pressure and by increasing the blood pressure, you're increasing the afterload. So what you're doing is you're helping the heart pump more, but even though you're helping the heart pump more, you're adding more resistance onto it. So you're just increasing myocardial oxygen demand, but you're not really, doing anything with it. So all you're doing is hurting the heart at that point. Right. So you so, make the heart squeeze more effectively, but it has to work so much harder to do it because now there's a tight pipes. So that's when you use an inodilator. That's when dobutamine comes in. That's when milrinone comes in. I would say that the, I would probably start with dobutamine because the half-life is a lot shorter. Milrinone, you're married to it for like six, six hours. <laughs> so if you don't like it, you don't like it. Um, but that's when I would give like a dobutamine. Now, if someone is hypotensive and they're a cardiogenic shock, that's when you would give something like epi or norepi to raise their blood pressure. You get some numbers on them. If their cardiac index is low, right? If their cardiac index is low, then that's when I would say add some 
inotropic support like a dobutamine. The problem is it might drop your blood pressure, but that's okay. You give something like norepinephrine to kind of cancel that out. Gotcha. So the hypotensive one is kind of more, a little bit trickier because that's when you're kind of using the jujitsu kind of thing. Right. And up you, on this, down. Up on this, down <laughs> on this. No, I didn't like this. So maybe we need to go up on this. You know, it's kind of, it's weird. Right. It's, it's so when we're, when we're doing that, we are in the ICU for a reason. Correct. We need hemodynamic monitoring. You need, you need numbers. Really you need data. No, we're not guessing anymore. We need an art line. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I love a swan, but you don't always get a swan. <laughs> just, just so that you can know what you're what you're dealing with. So just to review, if you have someone who has a good blood pressure at baseline, obviously anodilator is your way to go. Yeah, you, you have room. You, you have room to wiggle, right? Yeah. But if they are like rapid response, rush to the ICU, you know, they're in shock and their blood pressure's 80 over 40, you go starting an anodilator, well... You're going to get yourself in trouble. Right. So you have to balance that with some sort of vasopressor. Yeah. And it gets kind of, so the intuitive thing is to use Epi. Mm -hmm. That's what we're all taught. Yeah. And you're, you're smiling because you know what I'm about to say. So uh, <laughs> no, bust up the literature, buddy. I'm, I'm all so about this. So Epi is, so Epi is what everyone's good, is what everyone's go to. It's like because Epi. is the king of contractility. It's like, right. So, and people love it because it increases your blood pressure if you're hypotensive. It'll increase your contractility. Cool. But remember what I just said like five minutes ago, you're increasing your contractility and you're increasing your blood pressure, but it's kind of, I don't know, it's a little, it's a little counterintuitive. So some people will use norepi. And the reason they use norepi is it has the alpha. It actually has more alpha activity than epi does, but they use it in combination with dobutamine. So they'll add the dobutamine, and if you get worsening hypotension, they'll add the norepi or they'll increase the norepi. So the question is like, what's better, right? And intuitively, everyone will say epi, but it's been studied. And there are there's a good amount of data. I think there's like three RCTs. There's a smaller one in the United States, it's like 54 patients and they and they cut it off early 57 sorry thank you it's not but they're <laughs> so it's not a very good marriage fall it's not a good end so christian when thinking about these heart failure patients let's go best case scenario okay so they're in the icu they're on all the things but they're getting better what is like the typical flow of a patient who is in cardiac shock but improves all the way to discharge. Like, what would that look like? Sure. So if you have somebody, so, you know, this patient's a good example. She was like normal intensive on the dobutamine. So that was actually pretty good. We didn't have to add pressors. Uh, slowly but surely, you wean it off, wean it off, wean it off. And you're getting your data as you're weaning it off. And then at some point, their cardiac index looks good. Their central venous looks good. They don't have a lactic acidosis and they're peeing and their LFTs are going down. So they're doing good. Then at that point, you transition them to the goal-directed therapy, ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, um, diuresis. So that's um, when beta blockers are good. That's when beta blockers are good, once you've stabilized. Right. Now, let's say, so she she's a good candidate, right? But now let's say it wouldn't have gone that way. Let's say, oh man, so we have the dobutamine. It's not working. Now I'm adding leave effects, I'm getting hypotensive. We're not going anywhere fast. You have to make a call. Do I keep adding chemicals? And do I keep just saturating her heart with catecholamines or do I do something different where I can mechanically offload the heart and give it a break? What is the negative outcome 
of saturating the heart with all these chemicals. Yeah, so there, it's a really good point. So that's so there's a lot of evidence that show that like by going shoving the heart with catecholamines. All right, cool. So we're on epi, we're on norepi, we're on dobutamine. Beta, Everybody, alpha, all our numbers are great. Everybody's high fiving each other. Yeah, I go team. But we're just we're potentially you're increasing the workload of the heart, right? You're causing the heart to pump a lot, and eventually it could poop out if you get stunned. You get stunned myocardium from excessive catecholamines. So you just want to be careful that you're when you start getting excessive doses and you're not getting better, that it's time to switch it up. I think that's the point. The point is if you're if you are medically managing and you're not getting better, we are going nowhere fast. That's when you're like, okay, we need to do something. We need to do something bold. We need to do something brave because if not, we're gonna lose this patient. Okay. So if we've maxed out everything medically and they're still not doing well, or maybe they're just barely hanging off. We'll just say yeah. that. You've decided, okay, we're gonna go bolt. We're gonna go mechanical circulatory support. Your favorite thing to talk about, right? Favorite. Can you just list out the options and then next week we're gonna dive into each one. Cool. So we have mechanical circulatory support. We have an intraortic balloon pump. We have an impella. We have a centromag. And then we have ECMO. <laughs> and that's the those are the temporary meds. So these things are not pharmacological these are physical devices these are devices that, that you put the heart yes you, the whole contract yeah. and after liver reduction thing yes yeah. very good all right well christian i know you're excited for next week talk about your favorite thing let's go thank you so much for helping me break down the medical management of heart failure and we'll see you next week see you next time before you go i just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode you would probably like my course too my one hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how i approach emergencies if you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN.